0: Hey, if this is your first time listening to the show, you might want to go back and listen to the two episodes before this one. It'll make more sense that way. Here's producer Caitlin Esch.
1: It's Sunday morning at Freedom of Worship Church. People are streaming in, finding seats and wooden pews. It's a non denominational Christian church with Pentecostal and Baptist influences built on top of a mountain in Wise County in the mountains of Virginia. The service is in a modern, sparsely decorated room with a high ceiling and plush carpet. The pulpit looks like a stage, with screens displaying verses from the Bible. Good morning, everybody. Pastor Rob Fultz welcomes the crowd.
2: It's good to be in the
3: house of the Lord today. It's great to see y'all gathered in.
1: In addition to being a pastor, Fultz also owns a bounce house business. He's a school bus driver, and he's a math teacher. So his sermon is peppered with math references.
3: You know, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. Thinking,
1: oh, God is light, he says. Therefore, God is the fastest thing in the universe. He can get to you in an instant. I mean, the devil can't travel that fast, but God can. There's a lot of music throughout the service. At the end, there's a song.
3: They need the light. 186,000
4: miles per
3: second to intervene in their lives.
1: People leave the pews and come forward singing— Women kick off their heels. Some ask Pastor Fultz for a blessing. And a few lie face down, prostrate on the carpet, just sobbing. Others sort of gather around and lay their hands on the sobbing person, as if to comfort.
4: See, there's a next for every single one of us. There's a next. There's more for every one
3: of us.
1: Outside, after church, We'll right here. Yeah, I asked Pastor Fultz about that moment during the service.
4: People were laying hands on each other, praying for each other, encouraging each other, because we're to bear one another's burdens. We are to lift each other
1: up. And the biggest burden the church has dealt with in recent years.
4: Substance abuse problems that have entrenched themselves into the community.
1: So about 10 years ago, after presiding over funerals for people who'd overdosed and learning about the size of the problem... Pastor Fultz started a Christ-centered 12-step program.
4: One of our, our missions is to give people hope, to let them know that they don't have to die this way. There is a way out.
0: Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, Senior Correspondent for Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk. This season, we're talking about drugs, drug epidemics, and specifically, how they end. This episode, Treatment. For years, Wise County, Virginia, has mainly focused on interrupting the supply side of drugs by punishing users and dealers through law enforcement, courts, jail. Wise County's approach has mirrored our national approach, following practices and policies that ramped up 30 years ago after a very different drug epidemic, the crack epidemic. But as we've told you, during the war on crack, crack prices fell, the exact opposite of what drug enforcement was going for, And since the 80s, that's true for other drugs, too. Cocaine, meth, and heroin. They've all gotten less expensive, and they're all readily available today. Meanwhile, what heavy law enforcement has succeeded in doing is locking up a lot of people for drug and drug-related crimes across the country and in Wise County, where the local jail population has ballooned, and it's costing taxpayers a fortune. There's widespread agreement, something has to change. But what do you do instead? For this last episode in our series, we return to Wise County. We'll hear from people in Wise who are struggling with that question. How do you get people to stop using drugs? Or at least stop them from overdosing and dying? Producer Caitlin Esch takes it from here.
1: In the mountains of rural Virginia, there's not a lot of affordable, high-quality treatment within a reasonable drive. What there are a lot of churches. That 12-step program that Pastor Fultz started, it's a local chapter of Celebrate Recovery. Maybe you've heard about it. There are meetings in churches across the country. It was the first to pop up in the region. Since then, several others have started. Like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery follows the 12-step model. In AA and NA, the 12 steps reference a higher power in a spiritual but non-denominational kind of way. In Celebrate Recovery, the 12 steps are all about Jesus and the Bible. It's faith-based, but it's open to anyone who wants to quit using drugs.
4: No matter how long they've been addicted, no matter how many times they've tried to break the habit, no matter how many programs they've joined, no matter how many failures they've experienced, no matter how much they've given up or their family's given up on that ever happening, it can
1: still happen. I visited Celebrate Recovery one Monday night. There were about a dozen people there, plus a handful of volunteers who had cooked a free meal.
4: We had spaghetti, rolls, salad, apple salad, and
1: cake. There was a sermon led by Pastor Fultz, and then men and women broke into separate groups. I wasn't allowed to record, but people were talking about the week's triumphs and failures, losing kids to foster care and navigating the court system. A few participants said Celebrate Recovery meetings were the highlight of their week like 37-year-old Christy Rose.
5: I enjoy Celebrate Recovery, I do. I enjoy listening to other people and their stories and things like that. And I'm hoping one day I can actually stand up and tell them my story.
1: For seven years, Christy smoked synthetic marijuana, sometimes called K2 or Spice. Not an opioid, but another drug that's commonly abused in wise.
5: I felt like it took over my mind, like I couldn't live without it kind of thing. I'm not a druggie. I just, I got addicted to it.
1: Synthetic marijuana is actually a family of chemicals that often comes sprayed on a plant to seem more like marijuana. Like pot, it activates the cannabinoid receptor in the brain. But it's a very different drug. It can be way more potent, it's apparently addictive, and it comes with a slew of side effects like paranoia, catatonia, nausea, hallucinations, and seizures. It's been linked to kidney failure and to multiple deaths. In the seven years that Christy was on it, she says her life fell apart.
5: I lost my job. My kids was mad at me. I felt like my family looked at me differently. I lost myself. I would, I don't, I just, I was different. Very different.
1: Christy found Freedom of Worship Church when she was sentenced to community service and assigned to do cleaning work at the soup kitchen here. She'd gotten caught the way a lot of people do. She sold drugs to someone who turned out to be a police informant.
5: I worked with the girl, and I didn't think nothing about it because I'm far from being a drug dealer, but I just got it for her, and she was working for the law.
1: Christy pleaded guilty to three felony charges of selling a Schedule One or Two drug. In lieu of jail time, she was sentenced to 1,700 hours of community service. While she was working here, Pastor Fultz invited her to celebrate recovery. When we talked, Christy had been going to celebrate recovery meetings for several months. It was the only counseling she was getting, and Christy said it helped her take steps to improve her life.
5: Some of the verses that we talk about, there's like a Bible scripture for it, and I think that that's really good because I like reading the Bible. So like sometimes I'll doodle down what he said or what they're talking about, and I'll go home and read over it and things like that, and I kind of try to keep a lot of it with me.
1: This group doesn't keep data on participants. It's all anonymous. But the little research that's out there suggests faith-based programs can be effective.
6: It's really an extraordinary phenomenon.
1: Philippe Bourgois is a professor of medical anthropology at UCLA, and he directs the Center for Social Medicine in the psychiatry department.
6: It's mostly evangelical churches that basically seek out and embrace Addicts or people with, you know, intense substance use disorder who the rest of society has abandoned. And they tell them, be saved, you know, you know, come to the Lord, and you will be instantly saved.
1: As part of his research, Philippe has spent a lot of time with people addicted to crack and heroin. He says faith-based treatment is effective for some people because it meets a need that drugs once filled, a sense of meaning and purpose, a community
6: when they were addicted perversely they found meaning in the addiction socially when as soon as you're addicted you're all of a sudden surrounded by tons of acquaintances who are often stealing from you and, and cheating you but they're all they you all love the same thing you love to get high and you're all trying to make money and you're all creating temporary alliances sharing money sharing drugs and running from the police together so what treatment has to do is replace that and that's why faith-based treatments are so phenomenal because think about it as soon as you are saved in an evangelical church everyone in that room everyone in that church in that chapel is suddenly there to support you
1: also faith-based treatment is free bourgeois says it attracts a broader less wealthy more diverse group of people who maybe can't afford expensive treatment programs or counseling But research suggests that for opioid addiction, counseling alone is only so effective, whether it's a group like Celebrate Recovery or a more traditional 12-step program, or even one-on-one counseling. What works best is to combine counseling with medications that ease withdrawal and mute the cravings for drugs. Medications like methadone and the newer and safer drugs like buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone and Subutex. Studies have found medication-assisted treatment, as it's called, can reduce heroin use and overdose deaths. But in WISE, those drugs have a bad reputation. Because even though they can help people get off of opioids, they're also widely sold on the black market. Sometimes people who are addicted to opioids use Suboxone as a bridge to stave off dope sickness when they run out of their preferred pain medication.
2: And that's actually how I ended up finding out about Suboxone and Subutex.
1: This is Joey Ballard in one of the conversations he and I had back when he was sober. For years, he was addicted to an opioid called Lortab.
2: Because when I would run low on my Lortab, I could go spend $40 and get four Lortabs, which is barely going to last me that day. Or I could spend $40 and go buy a Subutex, and it could last me five or six days. So it made
1: sense. At first, Joey bought Subutex and Suboxone on the black market. But then he started going to a cash clinic to get a prescription. Cash clinics also have a bad reputation in wise. Doctors there don't take insurance. They just take cash, a lot of cash.
2: It's so expensive. To me, it drives, you know, the drug industry in the sense of, like, street drug industry because you have to hustle that money back.
1: Joey was spending more than $400 a month to see the doctor. And he says he was prescribed much more Suboxone than he actually needed, creating an incentive to sell the remainder of that prescription on the street. Joey says a lot of people do it.
2: I couldn't tell you where to go buy a pain pill right now. But I could tell you where I could go buy Suboxone or Subutex. So, like, it's literally just taken over. I mean, it's, you've... Absolutely replaced one drug with, or several drugs, with two different drugs.
1: A lot of drug cases Wise County prosecutes involve illegal suboxone dealing. So people in law enforcement tend to have a negative view of suboxone, and so do the courts. In Wise County's drug court, for example, participants are not allowed to use it. And the police officers and judges who are leery about suboxone are right that it can be misused and abused. The drug doesn't just stave off dope sickness.
2: So is a high effect because that's what affects your brain receptor, just like a pain medicine does.
1: At first, some people get a euphoric feeling. It's a weaker high than drugs like heroin, but it can last longer. The first few times, Joey would take it.
2: And not need anything for like the next two
1: days. <laughs> but then something else started to happen. After taking it for a couple of weeks, Joey developed a tolerance to Suboxone. And he didn't feel high anymore. He just felt normal, which is the point of the drug. That's how it's supposed to work.
2: You're able to function. You're able to go out and be a normal, functioning person of society.
1: And for the first time in a long time, Joey felt some hope.
2: From the time that I first ever did Subutex and realized that, okay, there might be a way out of this, I've wanted to get clean.
1: He took it for a while, then slowly started to taper.
2: I was like, well, I want to see just what I can get by with. Like, what can I take to avoid being sick and be able to function and not overdo it?
1: He cut his consumption to just a quarter of a pill a day.
2: And then I started realizing, okay, well, a quarter a day. All right, well, let's do a quarter every two days. I got to the point where I could do a quarter once a week. And then I was like, okay, if I'm doing just a quarter one time a week, I could just quit. That's what I did.
1: For all the controversy about buprenorphine, it does help people get off of drugs. But doctors and nurses who want to use it here have to walk a fine line, figure out how to use it without just putting more drugs out onto the street.
7: Good afternoon. Are you ready for your telehealth appointment?
1: The Health Wagon is a free faith based medical clinic that serves low income patients. There's take a you mobile back. clinic and a building I visited one day. In the waiting room, there's a Bible on the coffee table and a sign above reception that says, Share faith, offer prayer, gather hope. Paula Hill Collins and Teresa Tyson are nurse practitioners who run the clinic. They're glamorous the perfect hair, the pink lipstick, the jewelry. Teresa in a faux fur sweater, Paula in a leopard print jacket. They're also best friends from way back.
7: We've been best friends since we were 14. We actually laugh and say we gave new meaning to the term BFF. We have graduated four times together. We have our doctorate from the University of Alabama, our master's from the University of Kentucky, and
8: our bachelor's degree from East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. And as you'll probably see, we'll finish each other's sentences. So we've been, we're like the, t- the t- Siamese twins. The Siamese
7: twins. My, my son actually said that Teresa and I were like Siamese twins, that if there was a surgical correction for us, we would refuse to be separated. And we would. <laughs>
1: The health wagon was founded by a Catholic nun in 1980. She would drive around the mountains in a Volkswagen Beetle delivering care. These days, Paula and Teresa have upgraded to an RV, which they've turned into a mobile clinic. They drive it to remote areas to treat common ailments like diabetes and hypertension. They also have a brick-and-mortar clinic in Wise. Paula and Teresa see a lot of patients with chronic health conditions. I was shocked to learn that people in Southwest Virginia live an average of at least 10 years less than people in the northern part of the state. Some of the problems that Paula and Teresa see again and again, anxiety and depression, childhood trauma, and addiction.
8: Often we're seeing some of the patients that are maybe using opioids, they will present maybe to us with a cellulitis, and infection in the skin, or we will do free lab work
7: on them, and they'll, they'll present maybe with hepatitis and so forth like that. We see the ones that come in looking like skeletons, and they've had the meth, and you can see the skin, or we see their children that are now being raised by great-grandparents, not just grandparents, but great-grandparents. And we see that, and we see the tremendous burden that it's putting on the society here.
1: The first time I met Paula and Teresa, about a year ago in the spring of 2018, they were struggling to open an addiction clinic unlike anything that yet existed in Wise County. An addiction clinic that would use injectable buprenorphine. That's the drug that Joey was taking to help him quit using other opioids. Only he was taking it in pill or film strip form. In Paula and Teresa's clinic, patients would come in, get injected in a controlled setting, and leave making it pretty much impossible to resell the drug on the street. And it would be entirely free. Pretty amazing considering a single buprenorphine shot costs around $3,000 in the area. Across the country, most people who are addicted to opioids do not get any treatment at all. According to a new report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, medications like buprenorphine are, quote, severely underused, especially in rural areas. To make it accessible, Paula and Teresa considered offering services out of the mobile clinic. They thought they had anticipated every concern. Paula was not expecting the response she got. We have had towns that do not want us to come into their area. She called one small town to ask for permission to park the mobile clinic there.
7: and It was really shocking. I guess that was naive on my part that when we said, oh, yeah, we want to park here, we have, you know, the chief of police and the town manager saying, oh, no, we don't want you here. You get resistance to medication-assisted treatment centers because people think you're feeding it, and that goes back to the underlying culture of us being isolated here in the mountains and how much they almost put a wall around us to where they don't want any new ideas. It's like there's a resistance to doing anything about it because they, they are so resistant about or in denial that I don't want
1: this in my town. Paula and Teresa struggled with funding too, but they insisted they would not give up.
8: We can't stand by, and there's a Bible in the verse, you know, don't stand by idly as you watch your brother bleeding. I mean, there's a—what uh, that. What is that? out of uh, That's not out of Proverbs. That's
7: out of— That's out of the New Testament. Yeah. But also what we look at, too, is I do think it's a plague. And when you look at Revelations, everything that's coming, I mean, this is killing our young people. So we have always taken care of their medical needs. We're wanting to go ahead and take care of some of their mental health needs. Some of these substance abuse issues, because as Teresa said, we realize— People do not choose
1: to be this way.
7: No one at six, seven years old says, I want to grow up and get get addicted to
1: drugs and meth. Many months later, their persistence is about to pay off. This spring, they're finally opening a new brick-and-mortar addiction clinic. They bought a new building and set up a new business entity so they can bill Medicaid instead of relying on grants. Even though it's not open yet, word about the clinic got out when the sheriff's department posted it on Facebook.
7: Oh, wow. And we were like, take that off now because people were calling so much. But there's such an epidemic here. Putting it on Facebook was like, it overwhelmed us in one day. I think it was up for two hours and we had received 100 calls. That's what the need
1: is. All those calls from people who heard about the new addiction clinic and wanted in for themselves or for loved ones. The idea behind the clinic is to combine medicine with other supports like counseling, peer groups, even on-call ministers for spiritual support, to take a more comprehensive approach than either medication or counseling alone. For someone like Joey Ballard, the medication, with no other support, didn't work out. Last episode, I caught up with him at the county courthouse after he relapsed. Last time I talked to you, you were doing really well.
9: Yep, I was. And unfortunately, that didn't last.
1: (laughs) Can I ask what happened?
9: Uh, just... Yeah, you're a drug addict once, you're a drug addict always. It's just hard to to get away from it, I guess.
1: He was down on himself and dismissive of the treatment options and whys.
9: It's a joke. They're a joke.
1: Joey might say the treatment failed, at least in the long term. But his story is so common, even with the best treatment available, people get off drugs and then they fall back into using. So, some people in WISE are starting to talk about how to help the people who can't quit or who won't quit, at least not right away. Because, as it turns out, that's most people who struggle with addiction. That's after the break. Most people in recovery do relapse many times. That's just part of addiction. Addiction is now understood to be a chronic brain disease, and relapse rates are similar to other diseases, like diabetes and asthma. Most people who try to quit don't make it a year without relapsing. One study interviewed 1,200 people who were in treatment and then followed them over the course of eight years. Researchers found that two-thirds of them relapsed before making it a year sober— Of those who made it a year, about a third later relapsed. Which is why this new movement is growing in WISE, to face the fact that people will relapse and to try to minimize the harms that can come with drug use. One night, I dropped by this event at the local health department. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. These two people had come to WISE County, all the way from New York City, to lead a workshop. I caught up with them afterward.
0: You ready? Yeah. Hi, my name is Mike Selick. I work for the Harm Reduction Coalition.
1: And what's your name? Casey Bichak. They were out of towners like me, so they stuck out a little. Casey had dyed purple hair and a septum ring. Mike had a t shirt that said, Support, Don't Punish, in protest of the war on drugs. Casey and Mike are trainers with the Harm Reduction Coalition, which is an advocacy group. The local health department had brought them to Wise County to talk to public health workers about an approach that seems kind of radical to some people in Wise.
8: We
0: acknowledge that substance use and sex work are important parts of some folks' lives, and we work with folks so that they can stay safe and healthy, not just physically but mentally, spiritually, etc., while they're engaging in behaviors that are highly stigmatized.
1: Harm reduction is an idea that public policy should focus on helping people who are addicted to drugs, help them stay clothed, fed, housed, as healthy as possible, and prevent them from dying. What harm reduction does not necessarily do is try to stop people from using drugs. Here's how Casey sums up harm reduction.
0: Recovery to me doesn't always mean abstinence-based recovery or getting off of substances completely. It can mean something as simple as using substances in a way that allows you to hold down a full-time job, or being housed and having a safe place to use substances, or using a sterile syringe every time. And it can also mean abstinence.
1: What Casey is saying here about creating a safe place to use substances is surprising. Because when people talk about ending a drug epidemic, they tend to focus on getting people to stop using drugs, not making it safer to use drugs. I asked Mike and Casey this question that I'd been asking everyone on this trip. What's the best way to deal with the drug epidemic? Mike thought about it for a while. And then he said this.
0: So I think that you can't answer the question because it's the wrong question. We're having an... Overdose crisis, not yeah. an opioid crisis. Drugs are, an inner, are a chemical. They are not evil or bad in and of themselves. It's the way we have policies around them. So how do we end an overdose crisis? We invest in things like naloxone, overdose prevention sites, places where people could use under supervision. So if we ask the question how to keep people from dying, we have lots of good answers. Mm-hmm. If you ask the question how to stop people from using drugs, that's just not the right question. We shouldn't even be asking it.
1: Shouldn't be asking it. I think people are asking that question here, though. I'm sure. Public health officials in Wise aren't exactly giving up on the idea of trying to get drug users to quit, but they are embracing some of the ideas Mike and Casey were promoting. When I was visiting Wise County last summer, the local health department was gradually implementing a harm reduction program based on New York's. Probably the most controversial idea was a needle exchange, where injection drug users drop off used needles and pick up new ones. Dr. Sue Cantrell is the director of the regional health department. She started pushing for a needle exchange a few years ago to prevent IV drug users from getting HIV and hepatitis.
8: Keep them alive for another week or two or a year. And if they get to a point that they want to change, then they they know how. They know who to contact and how to get there and do it.
1: So help them stop if they're willing. But if they're not willing, at least make sure they're using a clean needle. But the needle exchange proposal divided the community. I talked to a lot of people who are against it, especially cops and prosecutors.
3: I'm not a big fan. Well, from law enforcement standpoint, I do have some concerns.
6: You are giving an individual an excuse to say, well... I'm addicted, I can't help it, give me another needle, and I'll continue. If I'm a heroin dealer, that's
4: half of my battle, is to get needles to use my product. So, I mean, it's a pretty good place for me to set up shop.
6: There's a certain segment of our community that feels, well, if you're going to kill yourself, just go ahead and do it.
1: On a Thursday night in January of 2017...
7: I'll call the the Weiss County Board of Supervisors to order at the School Board Education Center.
1: Dr. Cantrell went before the county supervisors to try to wrangle support for the needle exchange. The board meeting started, as it does every month, with a prayer.
3: We ask, Lord, that you be a part of everything that we do. And we ask, Lord, that you forgive us when we fail you. We seek your blessing and your wisdom in everything that we do. In your son's holy name, amen. amen. Amen.
1: About halfway through the meeting...
7: Okay, next we have Dr. Cantrell.
1: Dr. We'll Cantrell came forward. She put on her dark-rimmed glasses and pulled out her slides.
8: Uh, I'll just launch right into it, though. Um, I'm she
1: came to water sound water the here. alarm uh, about a looming slides public slides health, so health, so health crisis. Wise County is at and risk and of an HIV line. outbreak, so she I'm told I'm gonna, them. Turn, you know,
8: right now... I just don 't even want to say it out loud we haven 't seen a jump in HIV, but I will tell you why we 're really worried about it is because this really area
1: has five times the rate of hepatitis C compared to the state average, and seventeen times the rate of hepatitis b she said it 's just a matter of time before HIV is introduced to the population and we just haven 't had HIV yet, but uh, that 's because
8: I don't know. I think God's looking out for us right now so we can get a few things in place and get ready for it because we don't have
1: the capacity to really to manage it at this point. Dr. Cantrell reminded the board about what happened in Scott County, Indiana, a rural county, mostly white with high poverty, demographics similar to Wise. Scott County had an explosion of HIV cases, more than 180 in just a year. The health department was completely overwhelmed. After that, the CDC named counties most at risk for similar outbreaks. A lot of places in Appalachia were on that list, including Wise County. Dr. Cantrell told the board, the local health department has tried everything it knows to do. Hep B vaccines, overdose counseling, Narcan training and distribution. All that's left is a needle exchange.
8: I don't, really don't know what else there is that we can do. I feel like we've done what's out there, you know, and we're still seeing high case rates, so...
1: She was fighting off tears as she told them the county needs a place where injection drug users can get clean needles, get tested for diseases, and maybe even agree to treatment or counseling. I can't stand before you and promise that we won't make some mistakes, and I can't
8: tell you that this is absolutely the only thing we can do, but I can tell you that it's the only thing I know that's left to do.
1: And... Uh, um, that's why I made the request. I honestly did not know how this would play out. Over the months that I visited Wise, I talked to so many people who were opposed to the needle exchange. And then I talked to people who were totally won over.
7: If you can save a life, yes, give them a clean needle. They do it in it Switzerland. They do it in other countries. In
3: of their I mean, if people are going to do drugs, and they are, I mean, until something big changes, they're going to do them. So you might as well make it safe. It's a lure to bring them in to get help.
7: If you can keep someone from maybe spreading HIV to a room full of people or hepatitis, yes, do it.
1: Joey Ballard thought it was a good idea, too. He said he has never injected, but a lot of his friends do.
9: I'd say a good 80% of the people that I deal with, shoot. If you've not ever seen... And junkie set and use a dull needle on them on themselves, you don't understand it. Mm. But it breaks my heart to sit there and watch somebody sit there and jab themselves over and over and dig for that vein because they can't hit it with a dull needle. They can't find it.
1: But Joey was skeptical his friends would risk being seen going to the needle exchange.
9: The needle exchange? Great idea. But the problem is it's a tiny town. How many people do you really think are going to show up to that?
1: That was my question to you. Do you think people
9: use it? 90% of the people that I've talked to said, no way, I'm not doing it.
1: Here's the update. There was a lot of resistance at first, especially after a needle exchange in nearby West Virginia closed down. There were horror stories about needles flooding the town and a five-year-old girl getting stuck with a dirty needle in a McDonald's bathroom. But ultimately, Dr. Cantrell was victorious. The board unanimously voted to support the needle exchange. And local law enforcement also agreed to give it a try. It opened in June of 2018. That first day, no one came. But over the next few weeks, Dr. Cantrell said a few people trickled in to test the waters.
8: There were three or four people that were going to come, and they decided to send one person to see if they came
1: home and made sure it wasn't a sting operation. At last count, there were 73 participants. There has not been an outbreak of HIV. So far, the fears about the needle exchange haven't come true. Drug use hasn't spiked. Neither has crime. No children have been stuck by needles in public bathrooms. The program has trained 70% of participants to use Narcan, the overdose antidote. Perhaps best of all, and Dr. Cantrell actually teared up as she told me this, multiple people have already used their Narcan to save someone from overdosing. Ten overdoses reversed to date. The needle exchange was the first in the state. There are now just two others. I was struck by how hard it had to have been to build this kind of program and Wise. At every turn, Dr. Cantrell has had to persuade people to change the way they think about people who use drugs. She's kept at it year after year. I asked her, what motivates her?
8: Let me write that response to you.
1: (laughs) Okay, Uh She asked if she could email me an answer later because she didn't trust herself to speak. But after a few moments, she cleared her throat, and this is what she said.
8: So I've lived here for 30-plus years, and while my family hasn't personally dealt with this, I've seen a lot of wonderful people who themselves and their family have. And as I look at the struggles of this and look at the struggles that we all have with decisions that we made in the past that we would like to go back and change, some of which are easier to undo than others. I look at, as a Christian, I look at people as my neighbor, and I look at the folks out there who are struggling with health issues, whatever they are, and addiction is one of them, as my neighbor, and I would want to treat them the way I want to be treated. I love your neighbor like you love yourself. and. This is how I would want to be treated.
1: <laughs> so people have come around to this idea of harm reduction, or at least trying it. But to be clear, drug users and dealers are still getting busted by the cops and going to jail across the country and in Wise County. On a cold night in January, I was sitting in an unmarked police truck with Detective Tim McAfee. He was parked on the side of the highway, winning a radar gun at cars as they came down a hill. It was a quiet night, but after a while, a red Toyota Camry whizzed by, going like 20 over the speed limit.
4: Can I get, can I get him?
1: Yeah, sure. He raced off down the highway and pulled the guy over. Ended up letting him off with just a warning. As we were driving around, McAfee told me about something that happened a few nights before on the same stretch of highway in the tiny mountain town of Pound, Virginia. Population less than a thousand people.
4: I was uh, working uh, along with another officer in Pound a Saturday evening.
1: When a tip came in.
4: That a white truck would be traveling into Pound
1: for a drug deal,
4: the transaction of a sizable quantity of uh, crystal methamphetamine
1: happening that night in his jurisdiction. This highway, U.S. 23, connects Tennessee to Kentucky, and it's become a key corridor for drug traffickers. It happens to cut right through Pound. McAfee says meth is flooding into the region.
4: You know, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. There's nothing like it. We've never experienced anything like it.
1: It wasn't long before McAfee and his partner spotted a white truck traveling in the opposite direction, down the highway. So he turned around through a grassy median and followed at a distance. The white truck pulled off the highway and continued up a remote country road past a no trespassing sign.
4: And then I'm like, I don't know who you are, but you're not supposed to be up here.
1: The only thing that's up here at the top of the hill is a mining equipment business that had long since closed for the day.
4: Sort of knew one of two things was going on. One, either they were trespassing and up to no good being at that location, or if it was, in fact, they were there to meet another drug dealer.
1: At this point, McAfee turned on the police lights, stopped the truck.
4: The driver appeared to be quite nervous, he said that he was lost.
1: McAfee asked the driver for his ID. There were two other people in the car. McAfee asked for the name of the person in the front seat.
4: I asked him who the passenger was, and he stuttered a moment and was slow to say.
1: First, he gave a false name. But then the driver revealed who it was.
4: Uh, It's uh, Joey Ballard.
1: Joey Ballard. Joey told the cops he gave a false name because he's a wanted man. He'd skipped out on court the week before, so a judge had put a warrant out for his arrest. When officers searched the car, they found a digital scale, a little bit of what appeared to be methamphetamine, and hundreds of cellophane baggies. They arrested Joey and also Joey's girlfriend, who was sitting in the back seat. According to McAfee, the driver was belligerent, but Joey seemed sad, remorseful.
4: Well, he was crying. He's going to go to jail. His girlfriend's going to go to jail. He indicated to me that he was essentially homeless right now. They had no place to go. He had no money, and he was just surviving. From my perception, I think he's just thinking this: "I'm, I'm at the end. I'm spiraled down, and I'm about as, I'm at the bottom of the barrel." And he probably, you know, I think maybe, maybe more reflective moment. I think he's probably glad it's he's at a point now where he, there's at least a path potentially in front of him that he can put this behind him. Hopefully, that'll happen.
1: I tried to interview Joey one last time. I wanted to ask him about that thing Detective McAfee said that maybe Joey should be glad he was caught, this idea that jail is a kind of intervention. I wanted to ask him what he thinks about all these changes in his life over the last two years. He'd always had such sharp insights when we've talked, and I wanted to know what he'd say. But I never got to ask him those questions. A few days after he was arrested, Joey was led through the courthouse, wearing an orange jumpsuit and handcuffs, leg irons clinking against the courthouse tiles. Joey stood before a judge, alternately looking straight ahead, then down at his feet. A judge revoked Bond and set a court date for two months later. I did eventually get to talk to Joey briefly while he was in jail. He was brought into the main booking room for a video call. How's Duffield?
9: Shitty. (laughs) I was sleeping just now when they came down and got me.
1: He said he had been detoxing. He didn't look well. I asked him if he was nervous about what would happen to him if he gets sentenced to prison.
9: I'll be all right, though. I mean, they're they're trying to work some deal out. I I shouldn't be gone too, too long.
1: By coincidence, at that exact moment, his girlfriend was bonding out of jail. He could see her across the booking room. He hadn't laid eyes on her since they got arrested. He was calling out to her, trying to get her attention. Then the guard would yell at Joey, tell him not to talk to her. And Joey would yell back.
9: Man, I gotta tell her. I don't care. Oh, Joey. Yeah, yeah, whatever. All right. Well, I mean, come on, dude. I ain't gonna get to see that girl for the rest of, for a long time, bro. I ain't gonna get to see her for a long time. That's for the love of my life, bro.
1: I'm not exactly sure what happened next.
9: All right, I'll talk to you later. You.
1: Joey hung up the phone and shuffled away slowly, legs shackled together. The video feed kept going for a little while. A guard walked into the frame, trailing Joey. The guard was shouting something to him, but Joey just kept walking and then the feed cut off. Joey is in jail. His charges range from possession of meth to possession with intent to distribute to manufacturing a controlled substance. One day last spring, as things were just starting to get bad for Joey legally, I was at the county courthouse to sit in on a hearing about some misdemeanor charges he was facing. I met his lawyer, a guy named Joe Kincaid, Later, Joe and I got to talking, and he said something that's kind of stayed with me, something that sums up the shift in thinking in Wise County and the shift the whole country seems to be making and how we think about people who use drugs and what to do about drug epidemics. Joe's a small-town lawyer. He told me before he was a lawyer, he was a CPA, a certified public accountant.
3: Oh, I've changed a great deal. And as a CPA, I was a very conservative Republican
1: like when it came to people who commit crimes.
3: Put them in jail, get them off the street, protect me.
1: But that was before he started representing those people. These days most of his clients are charged with crimes that somehow relate back to drugs.
3: And uh now as a I don't want to say I'm a democrat cuz there's some things I'm not I'm not pro abortion or anything like that. So I'm I'm still conservative on some issues. But when it comes to inmates and, and people who are charged in court, it really, my way of thinking has changed 180 degrees. And um, I think that I'm a more humane person. Because once you see a, a, a person and you get to know some of these people and you share their troubles and their, their tears, I mean, they, they are, they're people just like us.
1: Joe has come to believe that policy should focus on treating addiction rather than throwing people in jail.
3: We're not going to beat it by cutting off the supply because these people will take a gas can and huff it, okay? Or they'll take a a can of Cool Whip and huff it. Once they're addicted, they're addicted. And that's the way we've been trying to fight this, is cut the supply and it's just not working. And put them in jail, is not working. The only way, I think, is to rehabilitate them.
1: So he totally supports the needle exchange, which was so controversial and wise. And then he took it one step further and said something that really surprised me.
3: I'd almost say, you know, have hospitals where they can go and get their fix, or clinics where they can go and get a fix. So at least they don't overdose. That's pretty uh, outrageous, isn't it? But, and I wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. I, I, <laughs> <laughs>
1: This was funny to me because Joe had independently imagined a supervised injection site, probably the most controversial idea in harm reduction. It's that idea that the harm reduction trainers from New York, Mike and Casey, were talking about. It's a safe place where people can go with their drugs, usually heroin bought off the street, and shoot up. A nurse watches to make sure no one dies. In some countries, doctors will even prescribe heroin to use under a doctor's care. There are supervised injection sites in Canada, Australia, and Europe, but so far there aren't any in the United States, though some cities are trying to start them. I told Joe all of this.
3: Really? Okay. I'm glad to hear they're trying something. And Because uh, we've talked about it, my wife and I have talked about it, you know, just having hospitals where they can go and lay down in a bed and get injected, and then when they're done, they can get up and leave. <laughs> it's kind of wild.
1: It's a, it's a pretty um, liberal idea. Yeah,
3: that's what I mean. I'm, not, I'm, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to most things, but I've just come to the point where you see people out there doing, they're sticking all kinds of needles in their arms, dirty needles, and they're putting all kinds of chemicals in their bodies, and it's just killing them. It's killing them.
0: Those ideas that Joe Kincaid was talking to Caitlin about, the ideas that he and his neighbors in Wise County are entertaining now, things like focusing less on the supply side of drugs, locking up dealers and users, and focusing more on the demand side, helping people manage their addictions. Things like needle exchanges. Maybe, someday, even things like supervised injection sites. People in Wise arrived at these ideas because they saw firsthand how other approaches seem to fail them. And on a national level, that's kind of where we're headed to. We still spend a lot of money on drug enforcement, and a lot of people are behind bars. But federal budgets are putting some more money toward treatment, and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are beginning to roll back some of the harsh anti-drug policies that ramped up during the war on crack. These new approaches might be both welcome And frustrating to the people who were part of the collateral damage in the war on crack. People like Keith Jackson, the kid who got arrested for selling crack in front of the White House. People like his classmate, Kerry Bridges, whose family struggled with drugs and did not get much help. In fact, as new as these approaches are to the country, Kerry and many others have been thinking about focusing on the demand rather than the supply of drugs for decades.
5: They're addicted, and it's a disease, and we need to get them some help. Okay, but we didn't need to get them any help years ago? Okay, I was just wondering. So, mm-hmm. As a Black woman in these United States, like, what were you doing 20, 30 years ago when it was, when it was a problem then? But it wasn't a problem because they couldn't identify. It wasn't until it stretched over different demographics, a different socioeconomic class, and then it it became a problem. But it's always been a problem.
0: This epidemic, like the ones before it, will end. In some ways, it's what we do in the meantime that makes a difference, to try to make sure that drugs don't hurt people so much and that policies meant to combat them don't inflict so much pain either. Maybe that'll be a lesson we've learned better by the time we get hit with the next drug epidemic. Because one thing that is certain, there will be a next drug epidemic. That's it for this season of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by Caitlin Esch. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me, Chrissy Clark, and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Balanon-Rosen, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Ben Hefcoat is our video producer. Mixing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Additional production help from Lyra Smith. Our podcast is edited by Catherine Winter. Sotara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. You can find photos and more from this season on our Instagram at MarketplaceAPM and at uncertainhour.org. If you enjoyed this season, I hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And special thanks to Tommy Andres, Betsy Streisand, Rostin Wu, Richard Parks, Stephen Simon, Maya Beckstrom, Corinne Buchanan, Erica Weideman, Michael Durfee, Max Felker Cantor, Sylvia Castillo and the Community Coalition, Justin Brown, Candy Simon, Patrice Wallace and all the residents of A New Way of Life, Jeff Donfeld, Jerome Jaffe, Mary Weaver and Friends Outside LA, Jonathan Culkins, John Carnavale, Harold Pollock all our Marketplace colleagues who helped us with feedback along the way, and Nancy Fergali, who helped bring this podcast into the world. And thanks so much to all of you who've helped support the work we do with your donations. You can contribute at uncertainhour.org. We'll be back next season to dig into something else we fight a lot about, but know only a little about.